over stopping puberty in perfectly healthy children. Stopping the development of children because they've been led to believe that they were born wrong, that they need to be something they're not, just because maybe they're a little different. Welcome back to the Kevin Roberts Show. It is a new year, and with that, some new opportunities, but some long-running challenges. We're going to talk about one of them this year, but I, I will say that I hope that over the holiday season, whatever your, your practices are in observing Christmas and Hanukkah or other holidays, that you got some downtime for this reason. 2024 is the year that we take back not only America, but Western civilization. And that means that we have to be focused on common sense. You know that we have the privilege on this show of attracting some guests who are really important. They're movers and shakers, some of them elected officials, some of them book authors. I'm really excited about this guest who is famous and a hero of mine because he stands on sidewalks. Chris Elston, <laughs> Billboard Chris. That's heartfelt, by the way. Thanks for being here. Many people in the audience, maybe most, will know who you are and what you do. We'll get into, into that. But let me just say, on behalf of all of us at Heritage, not just those of us who work here, but the hundreds of thousands of people who make our work possible, thank you. I would say for being a great American, but in fact, you're a great Canadian. I'm Canadian. I, I still have a policy of America first because it is my philosophy that when we fix this issue of child transition in the United States of America, that will have huge repercussions all across the globe. Canada's never going to fix this until America fixes it first. Yeah, so. that's right. And, and, and this issue, we'll just jump right in, is the scourge of gender ideology. And I want to get into some of the substance of that, which is always a a difficult conversation for us as, as dads, just because we can't believe that parents allow this to happen to their children. But before we get into that, I always like, just for the sake of conversation, for our audience to know, why in the world are you doing what you're doing? And, and often, you know, for a member of the U.S. Senate, it's a little bit of a straightforward uh, conversation, which makes sense and we're thankful for. But in your case, your guy walks around with billboards. You wear billboards. And... I'm not suggesting that's crazy, my friend. It's okay. I'm suggesting that it's <laughs> heroic, but I'm really curious because I've never asked you this question, how you got into it. Yeah, you know, it's it's still remarkable to me that I get any respect at all because I, <laughs> I go out on the street as a human billboard, human sandwich board, and I, I'm sure I probably look ridiculous. I try to wear a nice blazer or something to get a little respect. But even from the very get-go, I got a lot of respect because this message that I'm wearing which is children cannot consent to puberty blockers or gender ideology does not belong in schools. People are really upset about what's going on in society and they're all afraid of talking about it. So when they see me with this message, they're very thankful. And I got into this because I'm a dad of two girls. They're 11 and 14 years old now. When I first learned about this back in 2019, I think they were probably seven and nine, and I saw some people on Twitter start to talk about this that I followed. And I came across this term puberty blockers. And I thought, that doesn't sound good. What are those? And so I looked it up. And of course, they do exactly what they sound like. We're stopping puberty in perfectly healthy children. Stopping the development of children. Because they've been led to believe that they were born wrong. That they need to be something they're not. Just because maybe they're a little different. Some of these kids are on the autism spectrum. A lot of them have suffered abuse or trauma. They're kids in state care. These are just kids with distress for whatever reason. 
and they're now being told that, well, we can fix that by changing your body and sterilizing you. So this is child abuse, pure and simple is what it is. And as a dad of girls, this is a social contagion primarily affecting girls. I wanted to learn all about it primarily to protect my kids because I view this basically as a cult that has taken over all of our society. And my dad has a job is to protect my kids. But the more I started reading about this all throughout 2020, I was reading about it every night, learning more and more. The more you read, the worse it gets. I felt compelled to do something. And what happened in July of 2020 is a woman in the UK named Posey Parker or Kelly J. Keene. And she put up a very controversial poster at the Edinburgh train station. It said, I heart JK Rowling, the Harry Potter author, who has also spoken out about this and for women's rights. And that's all it said. And it lasted one day because some people on Twitter complained and the government run train authority took it down. And all so, because of Rowling's comments about this issue. That's right. Because <clears throat> a lifelong feminist and leftist is now suddenly a terrible bigot because she thinks women shouldn't get fired from their jobs for acknowledging biological reality. And she thinks we shouldn't be maiming and sterilizing children. So that's what passes for hate on the radical left today. But for me, I think we should be having millions of conversations about this. When so many kids are coming to harm, we should be talking about this and figuring it out. Instead, nobody was talking about it. They were all afraid to. And now you can't even put a sign up saying you love the world's greatest children's author. So it ticked me off. Our freedom of speech is under attack. So I put up a billboard, an actual billboard in Vancouver that said the same thing. I love J.K. Rowling. It also lasted just a day because a Vancouver politician said it was hate speech and she pressured the sign company owned by billionaire philanthropist Jimmy Patterson. He's not involved in day-to-day -day operations. If he was, there's no way this would have happened because he's a good Christian man. But they took the sign down. And I was prepared for this. I leveraged all the outrage online because this went viral into a quick fundraising campaign. A week later, I had the same billboard up in San Francisco, then Los Angeles, Portland, all throughout Utah, all throughout the metro here in DC, and then Times Square. So that was my September of 2020. I was very busy. I didn't sleep a lot. <laughs> and I ran out of money. <laughs> and so I thought, well, what can I do now? No sign companies will work with me. I have no platform. I have no media experience. I'm just a guy living out in the, in the suburbs who has had enough of this nonsense in our society. So I did the only thing I could do. I had some signs made. And instead of holding them, because that's just kind of annoying, I wear them. It's easier. And I know I'm going to take a lot of ridicule, but I don't care because I'm an old guy now and all I care about is my kids. It creates good dad jokes, right? Yeah, exactly. And I noticed right away, wow, all these thousands of dollars I spent on billboards, this is so much more powerful because there's a person behind it and I'm not hiding. And it inspired a lot of people. And so I had this vision that if I just keep going outside, and I always say great things happen when you go outside. It's true. So I started going downtown Vancouver, just hanging out. And I don't approach people. I'm as calm as can be. I wait for them to come and talk to me. And they'll say, what are puberty blockers? And I have a conversation. And so I just have started having conversations. And I haven't stopped. And then I started traveling Canada. I started recording these conversations. And I post them online. And it helps to educate other people how to talk about this subject. And I knew that if I just kept going, other people would start wearing their hats and doing their jobs in whatever field they work in, the lawyers, the doctors, whoever. And I 
frequently mentioned these days this speech that Javier Mille gave, the new president in Argentina. He said he's not here to guide sheep. He's here to awaken lions. And that's how I feel, because I know for every thousand people I talk to, two or three of them are going to get activated and they're going to start fighting. So that's happening. We now have a law firm in Texas, four dads, 17 kids between them. They left all their law firms. They started a new one just to sue for these detransitioners. They're suing the American Academy of Pediatrics now. And I don't think it's going to take 10 years to end this. I think we get it done quick. We're already having amazing success, primarily thanks to the work of the Heritage Foundation and other people that come to these conferences that we've had the last two days here. Yeah, you've, you've, you're here in, in Washington, D.C., in part for this conference that we just hosted. And we've done this a few times. Our, our mutual friend and my colleague, Dr. Jay Richards, came up with this idea, uh, I think, with your help a couple years ago. And we'll get into uh, to some of the policy, where this is going in the future. But I'm, I'm curious about the first time you went out on the sidewalk with the sandwich board downtown Vancouver. Yeah. What was, do you remember the first conversation you had? Well, I, when I had the first billboard up, I actually got some lawn chairs and sat down beside it. It was a huge wide sidewalk. So you had some experience before it got taken down. Uh, cause it was always my goal to start conversations. That was the point of the billboards. Cause people say, what the heck is that billboard about? <laughs> and they start talking about it. That one generated a lot of hate, by the way, the, I love JK Rowling. Nothing comes even close to that. But when I started going downtown Vancouver, wearing my signs, the first few months were crazy. It was extremely abusive verbally. I got assaulted several times. I got arrested twice in the first three months, both times after getting assaulted in front of the police. You get assaulted in front of the police and you get arrested. Correct. Welcome to the West. Yeah. All these Antifa people surrounded me, wouldn't let me walk freely in a public square in Vancouver. And there were tons of police there because there was a huge rally going on. And they said, you can't walk here. And I said, wait a minute, I'm in Canada. You're telling me I can't walk freely because I have some signs people don't like. And he just said, I'm telling you, do not go into that crowd. And this other man said, the other officer said, this is a safe space, man. Now I'm a normie, Kevin. He says it's a safe space. My mind goes, it's a safe space. <laughs> of course, that's not what they mean. They mean it's safe for these people. It's not safe for me. So a third time, I'd already been assaulted once and police did nothing. A third time I walked off the sidewalk into this public square. Police followed me in. A union rep came and hit me like this. I was handcuffed, taken to jail, charged with causing a disturbance and banned from walking on all the streets of downtown Vancouver. How did that get resolved? Six months later, the day before my first court hearing, the Crown Prosecutor dismissed the charge, which I pretty much knew would happen. This, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom was going to represent me pro bono. And I wanted to go to court because this would be a slam dunk victory because they were violating my charter rights. But this is what they do. The punishment is the process, as we see so many times in society today. And, and they were, just to hang on this, if you don't mind, they, the authorities, were ex not just hoping, they were expecting that you would fold. Right. And one of the great stories of success of this whole movement against gender ideology is that we're not folding. And we're not folding because of truth, because of common sense, for that matter, because of care and love and concern for all humans on the planet, including those who really are victims of, of this ideology. Once again, we'll get into that, but I, I've got one more question about this first incident. You get home, you're assaulted, you're arrested. <laughs> what does your family say? Well, my, my wife knows me, so she knows <laughs> she's, she's not going to change my mind, you know? And... 
by that point, there'd already been several incidents and she knew I was all in on this. I quit my job and I started having these conversations full time because I had a vision that like, I've, I used to be in business. I used to be an investment advisor. Um, and in all things in life, it's persistence that results in success. And I've seen people start from nothing in different businesses and they just work hard and they have a passion for what they do. And maybe not much happens for a few years, but then eventually it takes off and they have remarkable success. For this, I feel like this is what I was meant to do. I never really loved those businesses. I'm not all about chasing money. I really want to live a purpose-driven life. And this feels like that for me. This is absolutely a purpose-driven life. And I knew if I just kept going and persevered through all the abusive stuff and the attacks, the broken arm in Montreal, all sorts of things, um, there's nowhere to go but up in terms of creating awareness. And honestly, these incidents help me. Yeah, they do because yeah. I, I discovered your work in the middle of COVID a few years ago via Twitter. And I thought, man, this guy's awesome. I hope I get to meet him one day. So having this conversation is a real treat for me. But also I thought we need more men and women to have this guy's courage. But the, we often will ascribe to the courageous men and women that they're really bombastic and audacious. And you're quite the opposite. You're, you're actually very disarming. And you've had some conversations with people where the, the, the person started kind of hostile and you've really calmed them down just by your demeanor and being focused on the truth. Do you, is there one of those that, that readily comes to mind that's helpful for our audience as we, you and I try to encourage them to have conversations about this? Sure. There's a lot of those. One that immediately comes to mind was at Penn University. A gay black man rode by on his bicycle swearing at me, yelling at me. And sometimes with the men, I'll, I'll push back a little. I'll just say, you know, what, why don't you come have a conversation? You know, be a man, come have a conversation. Exactly. And to this man's credit, he stopped and he did come back. Now what happens frequently, people just seeing me, just seeing the message, children cannot consent to puberty blockers, gives some of these leftists an adrenaline rush and they're shaking. They're physically like have little tremors going on. And that's what, that was the case with this, this guy. And his face was even ticking a little bit and he was all amped up. And so my strategy with these conversations is when people really disagree with me a lot or they think I'm the devil, I just say things that they can't help but agree with. Because you, you can give me the most radical trans activist and I can say things all day long that they cannot help but agree with. For example, there's no right way to be a boy or girl. Our kids are beautiful just as they are. We shouldn't be putting them in some stereotypical box. If a little boy is effeminate, well, guess what? He's a beautiful little boy. You know, a tomboy is a beautiful little girl. They all agree with this. They have this blind spot where they don't see that they're pushing these stereotypes to such a degree that they now think that kids who defy these stereotypes must be trans and need to alter their body because the left has been very successful in conflating being gay with being trans when we know historically from all the academic studies that have been done before they gave kids puberty blockers, almost all of them grew out of this distress, this gender dysphoria, and a lot of them did grow up to be gay. Now this was when this affected one out of 40,000 kids. So these are really progressive statements that they can't help but disagree with, and it confuses them, and it brings down the temperature. 
And now I've created this moment of cognitive dissonance where there's two competing ideas going on in their head. First, they thought I was this terrible bigot. Now I'm saying things that they can't help but agree with, and it confuses them. That's a beautiful conversation right there. Now with this man, we continued on talking for 80 minutes. And by the end of the conversation, he was completely on my side and gave me a hug. So I just had to educate him. Because sometimes I think we think these people are all evil. And some of them are. This whole ideology is evil to the core. But a lot of people are just deceived. And they just need to have the truth told to them in a compassionate manner. And sometimes you just got to take a few barbs and let them vent a little bit. And just keep going. So that sort of thing happens all the time. How many people in total do you think you've had conversations with? 25,000? Yeah. Probably something like that. 3,000 hours out on the street. So, yeah, something like that. Some of the conversations are short, some are long. Interactions, much more than that. And then, of course, on any given day, 100,000 people might see me. I'm not talking to them, but I'm starting conversations in their car as they drive by. They're saying, what are puberty blockers? They're Googling it. I have people roll down their windows saying, hey, we thought you were crazy, but we just looked this up. Thank you, you know? Well, which really is such an indictment of, of our media, right? Right. And that, first of all, this this phrase, puberty blocker, something none of us knew or very, very few of us just a couple of years ago comes into the parlance and, and we're supposed to just accept it as okay because some small group of doctors then say that it's okay. Right. On that point, Chris, I, I presume that you've become a bit of an expert on the origins of gender ideology. I'm sure someone listening to this conversation is curious about that themselves. I, I feel that question a lot. I'm, I'm curious what your study of that has shown. Sure. So really it started with this doctor named John Money out of Johns Hopkins University who uh, coined this term gender identity and basically believed that, you know, we have this essentially a gendered soul which really is just called personality. But if you're really effeminate as a male, this means you have a female gender identity. And so he started theorizing on this, and then he got really what he wanted, a test subject. In, I guess it was the 60s in Winnipeg, Manitoba, a couple had two twin boys, and then when these boys were at eight months of age, they took them to get circumcised. And this device malfunctioned and burned this little boy's penis right off. And so obviously that's totally devastating. The parents are at a loss of what to do. And the mother saw some commercial about John Money and his research and she contacted him. And so they decided together to raise this boy as a girl. They castrated him completely, changed his name, dressed him as a girl, didn't tell him he was really a boy. and. John Money saw these boys together every year. This gets gruesome. I'm not, I don't really want to get into it all. Sure. But John Money's a pedophile for sure. He had these boys doing sexual things to each other. And long story short, both of these boys as adults ended up killing themselves. But Dr. Money falsified a lot of his research. But it picked up steam throughout academia. And this concept of gender identity has been floating around universities for decades. And that was kind of, that's one thing when it's in some obscure corner of a university, people talking crazy stuff, but it's really emerged out of the universities into the mainstream. And I think when there was a big push for gay rights 
you know, at the turn of the century, probably through 2010. And when those objectives were won by these organizations, they turned their focus from gay rights to so-called trans rights. And they've been successful at just calling it a civil rights movement. And the left just keeps going along with it. And they have a lot of money. They have a lot of backing. They have all these leftist governments throughout the world. Of course, they've got the UN, the WHO. And it's all a lie. I have this expression, there are two sexes, there are zero genders, and there are infinite personalities. Because that sums us all up. But this is a lie that's so big that I think people just take it as fact. And they use terminology that confuses people. And that's done intentionally as well. And so we just have a big job on our hands to educate people and to get back to reality. Because there's no such thing as a transgender child. They're called girls and boys. And they're beautiful just as they are. No drugs or scalpels needed. Part of your motivation maybe even a large part of your motivation, is to inspire others in addition to having the conversations with people who might have a difference of, of opinion, but to inspire others, as you said, not to be sheep, but to be lions. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that, especially with the advent of social media, is making sure we're using the right phrases, the right words, not in a manipulative way, but but in an effective way. And, and often, I'm, I'm sure you get this too, often at Heritage, the most common questions we get from friends, supporters, elected officials on this issue and others is, can they say, Kevin, can you help us understand how best to talk about this in a way, A, that's respectful of everyone, but B, is effective in getting people to understand the truth. And I, I'm going to use the, the phrase that you mentioned, two sexes, zero genders, infinite personalities. Are there, the question is, are there other phrases, uh, narrative framing, if you will, that's been really helpful for you, not just to diffuse a, a disagreement, but most importantly, to persuade people to the correct way of thinking? Yeah, so with 90% of the population, we just need to have a basic conversation. They say, what are puberty blockers, mm. you explain, and they support you right away. <clears throat> for the people who are on the fence or maybe disagree, it depends on the context you're in and, and it depends on their mood. You're not mm. going to change the mind of an angry person on the spot. But the strategy with them really is to ask questions. Because if you treat this like a cult, and I do, cult members never come out because you tell them they're wrong. You can point them out the truth all day long. It doesn't matter. Because they self-police their own thoughts. They don't allow themselves to research things. They can't bring themselves to acknowledge the truth. Because like with this, their whole social circle is people who think that this is reality. They would lose all of their friends. They might have children or parents or siblings or whatever involved, and they don't allow themselves to know the truth. So with them, you just have to ask them questions. You have to get them questioning these things themselves. So I'll ask this person, I'll say, well, what does it mean for a girl to be a boy? And just pause. Let that silence be there. They have nothing because obviously there's no such thing as a girl being a boy, and they can't define it. Matt Walsh's film, What is a Woman, was extremely powerful and it was so helpful to this whole movement because if you watch that film, he didn't offer an opinion the whole time. All he did was ask questions and the greatest authorities in the United States on the subject of gender can't answer the question, what is a woman? And so that was really helpful in exposing that there's absolutely nothing underpinning this ideology. So say things they agree with, get them asking questions, you gotta get them thinking, they're going to go home. They're going to start thinking about this themselves. And one day, these ripples that you've created are going to get through, and you'll wake a lot of them up. But for average people, you just need to know your stuff and just explain what's happening, and they'll support you right away. 
Do you think that we've turned the corner on this issue? 100%. 100%. So we've got 22 states now that have passed legislation. Some of that legislation still needs to be improved a bit. Like in Georgia, they did it kind of halfway. They need to get to puberty blockers next, which they will. We have England, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark. They're all doing away with this. And those countries didn't legislate it away, which is really a Band-Aid solution. We have to do it. But ideally, it would be the medical bodies themselves looking at the evidence and saying, gosh, guys, there is no evidence. And that's what happened in these countries. So they're putting a stop to it. Florida did the same thing. The medical board conducted a review. They followed that up with legislation. But when you look at the research, nothing supports this. It's all based on lies. And we're already seeing that with some of these court cases that have happened because of the legislation. Of course, the ACLU always sues to have the right to sterilize kids. And we're winning some of these decisions. We're also losing some of these. But that's a great thing because that's how you get to the Supreme Court, right? You have to have some wins. You have to have some losses. And you have the Supreme Court to settle the matter. And I'm confident when this does get to the Supreme Court, they are going to settle the matter. And we're going to do away with this. And you're convinced that once that happens in the United States, that Canada will follow suit. Absolutely. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is already now conducting a systematic review. That's only being done because we made them do it, because public pressure made them do it, because we've created so much awareness that they can't ignore it anymore. Now, I don't trust them to do it honestly, but at least they're doing it. There should be some improvement. But there are court cases flying around now. Detransitioners are suing. The American Academy of Pediatrics is also being sued because the man who wrote the policy that they currently follow is named Jason Rafferty. When he was just a resident, a medical resident, he wrote the current policy that they follow. He was also involved in the case of a girl in Rhode Island who is now suing. So because he was involved in her case directly and he wrote the policy, they can now tie in the AAP. And he's involved in a lot of other cases. So there's going to be more lawsuits coming. And we're going to do away with it. In Missouri, what happened, we have this whistleblower named Jamie Reed. She describes herself as a queer woman married to a trans man, politically left of Bernie Sanders. So the left can't cancel her. She worked at the gender clinic for four years as case manager. And she blew the whistle on all of this, saying all the exact same things that I'm saying today. She also submitted an affidavit to the Attorney General of Missouri, and they passed legislation. Now, part of the legislation that's usually being written today is it extends the statute of limitations 20 plus years, whereas previously medical malpractice statute of limitations were only one to three years in all 50 states. So because these kids are going to be able to sue far into the future, the lawyers involved are saying, this is too much liability. So the lawyer for this gender clinic in Missouri said, nope, we got to shut it all down. Legislators didn't even have to do a thing. It was just the statute of limitations. They said, nope, too much liability. So now they're not treating these kids anymore. So the insurance companies aren't going to tolerate these losses. And this is how we get to them, right? Money. That's, that's, that's the nature of politics and policymaking. Speaking of which, you're here in the nation's capital, and, and I presume you might have bumped into, met with some members of Congress. You don't need to mention their names, obviously. But I'm curious what action the American federal government needs to take on this issue. So obviously, they need to go after any sort of federal funding. Back to money. Yeah. Wherever there's money involved, they need to cut that out. They should pass legislation. Now, that's going to be difficult to do without the Senate. Um, there are some positive signs where even some Democrat lawmakers in New Hampshire recently were saying we shouldn't be doing these surgeries on kids. 
And by the way, that was a black Democrat that gave a speech. And I say that because in my experience out on the streets, the number one demographic who supports me is the black community, the Hispanic community. They're not okay with any of this. This is primarily pushed by white progressives. And I say that because demographics matter. And these are traditional demographics that vote Democrat. So this is a huge opportunity for Republicans to get these swing votes onto their side. Because for a lot of parents, this is the number one issue. They don't want their child being taught in school that they might have been born wrong. They don't want teachers keeping secrets from them as a matter of policy. It's outrageous what's happening. Hiding from parents that their own child has a new name and pronouns in school. That is beyond outrageous. But that's what the Democrats are pushing. But in terms of federal, you can probably answer that better than me. Obviously, we need legislation. I know Marjorie Taylor Greene submitted a good piece of legislation. And when I was at CPAC last year, during Trump's speech, the biggest applause he got was when he said we were going to stop the chemical castration of children and get men out of women's sports. So the people are behind this. Whatever legislation they can do, they need to do, and they need to go after the money. Yeah, and I think the the money is is the real key, as well as just just one addendum to your excellent response, is if in fact conservatives come to control the White House, hopefully soon, then there needs to be some executive action on that as well. Uh, yes, and absolutely. and that that can really expedite matters, and that's 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 even easier because of the the popular will which you've described, but also the actions that have happened at the state legislatures. In other words, our whole theory of policy change on this issue and on every issue is let it really emanate from the states because it makes it that much easier politically here in Congress where you might have noticed things move a little bit slower than in real America yeah. for all of that to, to happen. I'll ask you a couple more questions. One is um, I'm sure most of our audience knows where to track your work, but if, if, if they aren't familiar with that, where would they go to find you? I see you on Twitter, but I presume I might be able to find you other places. Yeah, so it is primarily Twitter, Billboard Chris. I'm on Instagram as well. I don't do as much there, but my main resolution for this year is to get all of these social media platforms going. I have a YouTube channel, but I don't do it much. Honestly, I don't have enough time, but I'm going to hire somebody to help me. And I'm going to get on YouTube and Rumble and TikTok as well, because... You're not supposed to say that at Heritage, Chris. 52% <laughs> of young adults, 30 and under, are getting their news from TikTok. That's terrifying. It is terrifying. So I got to reach them. I've just... I've had renters in my basement suite at home for 17 years, but I decided I need a studio. I need more space. So I've converted that space now into a studio and I'm going to be recording videos just to educate people, short videos, one, two minutes, get them up on all the different platforms. Yeah, that's so, kind of where I was going with the question because yeah. you're, and I really do mean this, your advice that you've given people is really good about what to say, how to say it, the, the, the demeanor to muster if we can. So those short videos would be really helpful. Yeah, thank you. I yeah. think so. And you mentioned Demeter. It's it's so important. We need to be calm. And when people are abusive, just take it. You know, it goes against a lot of our nature. But if I get assaulted on the street, for example, I'm just going to take it. It's far more powerful. Imagine how bad it would look if I was scrapping in the street, what the left would say and all of that. But if you look at the most powerful movements throughout history, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, it's all about nonviolence. They took the hits, they kept going. India won its independence primarily because of police brutality where they just took it. And those videos went worldwide and changed public opinion. So just, you know, 
People ask me all the time, what can I do, Chris? This is the number one question that I really don't have an answer for because I'm not that person. I don't know their passion. I don't know their skills and their gifts. But the answer to that is just do something. You've got to get off the couch and do something. You don't have to do what I do. Most people won't. But the thing about this is in the culture war, whatever it is, when you start doing something in the real world, you run into other people doing something. And now you start to get a team around you and you inspire other people. And once that inertia gets going, I mean, this is the laws of physics. An object in motion stays in motion. So you just got to get in motion and do something because there's nothing more important than our kids and we cannot allow this world to maintain the insanity that's going on. There's real truth in the concept of the silent majority, isn't there? Absolutely. And it's always going to be that way. But we're making it safer or more comfortable for people to speak up because three years ago when I started, nobody wanted to say a thing. I'd talk to people and if I had a nice conversation, I always say, are you okay with me putting this on social media? And almost none of them would. Today, it's way different. A lot of people go, yeah, sure, I don't care. You know, and we need to stop being afraid of repercussions from employers or whatever. There are ways to talk about this truthfully and compassionately without getting fired. Nobody's going to fire you for saying, I don't think we should sterilize kids. So sometimes we need a little bit of courage. I was outside the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago and a wedding party was getting their picture taken at the museum across the street. And one of those men happened to work at the Manhattan Institute and he recognized me. So they, all the groom's party came over. There was about seven or eight of them. And I, was, I had my video camera going and we got this good, they took a picture with me and I had a little video and I tweeted it out and it was just cute. It was fun, right? It was nice. I get an email later and then a text, the bride wants me to take it down <laughs> because I'm controversial apparently. And I took it down out of respect to the bride, of course. But I said to him, I said, you know what? I get it. Out of respect for the bride, I'll take it down. But we have to have more courage than this. Like, we're conservatives. We have to stop being afraid of telling these basic truths that we shouldn't be blocking puberty in children, you know? So sometimes you just got to step out of your comfort zone a little. And guess what happens? Your comfort zone expands. And then it becomes comfortable. And there are a lot of people out there who, who are willing to stand shoulder to shoulder with you, as, as your experience indicates. So one final question, which I ask most guests, and, and usually it is, why did you wake up this morning in spite of all the challenges in America, optimistic about the future? I'll add Canada to that question. Sitting here with you, I, I know that you're a hopeful guy, but I'm curious what the substance of that hope is in a way that might motivate others to do what you just said, which is to just get in motion. Well, I know beyond a shadow of doubt that this is too crazy to last. When you come between parents and their children and you start harming kids, that is not a movement that is ever going to last. It's always been simply a question of how many kids are harmed before we stop this child abuse. So I know we're going to win. There's never been a doubt in my mind. It's just how fast we win. And the more people who get involved, the faster we get there. So please, if you're watching this at home, Get involved, email me, reach out to some of these great organizations. There are so many in the United States doing it. If you're a mom, get involved with Moms for Liberty. Tiffany Justice, Tina Deskovich, these are some of my best friends. These are my heroes, honestly. They're so tough. They take so much abuse. There are so many lies and they just keep on going because they're moms and all they care about is the future for their kids. And this is how almost every parent is. 
So join up with one of these groups and figure out what you can do. Go to a school board meeting, run for school board, whatever it is. Just do something and sooner or later, it's going to be sooner. We're going to win this battle. This decade. Absolutely. Billboard Chris, Mr. Elston, <laughs> thanks for sitting with me. Thanks for doing what you're doing. And, and really, thanks for being a cheerful warrior about it. It's very inspiring. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great you honor to be here. I told you you would enjoy that conversation with Billboard Chris. Stay tuned for another episode of The Kevin Roberts Show when we are very clearly going to show you how we're taking back this country and others. In the meantime, take care. Keep your chin up. We're winning. The Kevin Roberts Show is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. The executive producer is Crystal Kate Bonham. The producer is Philip Reynolds. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and Tim Kennedy. For more information and to subscribe, please visit heritage.org.